Has your fuse box gone haywire? Is your water pressure too weak? Or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade? They don't last forever, you know. Well, the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that. So if you're locked out on a Thursday and need a locksmith, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. TNCs apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details. Taking stock on News Talk. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. You're welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at takingstockNT. Coming up on today's programme, are budgets an outdated piece of political theatre or do they remain an important part of how our politicians manage this small open economy? And our news cycle this week was consumed again with Brexit and the UK. We'll discuss these issues and we'll also examine the challenges that lie ahead for Boris Johnson this winter. We'll cross to Brussels to examine the inflationary concerns across the Eurozone and the constitutional clash between Europe and Poland. But to start us off today, back in the day, budgets were a big deal when governments were regularly faced with economic crises that required a fiscal response. Taxation had to be changed and government expenditure often moved radically just to balance the books. In the past, budgets were an important instrument to fix our economy. Here now to discuss what budgets are now and Budget 22 is Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Cliff, you're very welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mandy. Cliff, now you've written and analysed budgets for many, many years. It's, it's hard to believe now. Uh, Thanks I'm, for pointing that out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I recall the days, and, and I know you do, when the minister's speech on budget day was only circulated in Dáil Éireann page by page. And yes. the, the speech itself had to take place rather late in the day just to, to, to guard against affecting markets and the like. So the days of us all sitting around newsrooms nervously awaiting budget revelations are long gone. But can you give us a flavour of how important they were in the past and how that's changed? Yeah, we used to have people running up and down to Lancer House bringing kind of five and ten pages back to us at one stage, I remember. So you're right, it has all changed. Uh, and I suppose look, fiscal times have changed and we're in kind of a more planned environment now, you might say. Um, back in, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, uh, the budget, the budget, as you say, was a really big deal. And I suppose, as you said in your intro there, it was perhaps a really big deal because we tended to be in an economic cycle which was heading sharply upwards or sharply downwards. Uh, and that made budgets a lot more exciting because when, uh, when, um, when the economy was heading upwards, the minister had huge amounts of money to spend. So in the early 2000s, you know, budgets, the tax changes in budgets would really make a difference to your, to your mm. pocket, to, to, to the pocket of anyone in work. Uh, and they were really big stories. And, and then when the crisis hit, there was, there was a wobble, uh, a couple of wobbles. And then um, the, the real crisis in 2008, and as you say, then the budgets were something else. We, it was even one year, I think it was 20, 2010 when we had two budgets, um, things were so bad. So, you know, big cuts in uh, spending, big increases in tax. And indeed, the level of tax we all pay has, has, has remained higher since then, uh, even if it's just started to edge down slightly. So we're, we're in a more planned environment now. We have been under 
EU fiscal rules for a number of years that they've been suspended uh, over the last few years during the crisis, but will come back in some form. So there's a lot more framework around the budget now and, and, and a lot less, I suppose, to be decided on budget day. That's that's the first thing. Um, so that we know, we knew before the budget, how much spending was going to be next year, how much day-to-day -day spending, how much capital spending. We knew how much was going to go uh, on, on, on extra spending on the day and how much was going to go on tax cuts. So it was really just a question of, of filling in the little bits, whereas in, in the past, all of those figures would have been would have been up in the air and being fought about in the last weekend heading up to the budget. I think the other thing is that the politics has, you know, politics has changed. And there was a push and pull in the old days between kind of a lower tax, uh, smaller state model and, and a bigger state, higher tax model, depending on who is in government. That battle is kind of over now, uh, for the moment anyway, in that uh, there's no doubt we're heading towards a bigger state. And that means that, you know, really significant tax changes are pretty much off the table at the moment uh, because all the money is going into extra spending. And while that does affect people's pockets in terms of welfare changes, for example, and pension changes, a lot of that is stuff that's going to the money is going to the health service, it's going into investment, it's going into housing. Uh, and there are things, I suppose, that really aren't, aren't matters for budget day. They're, they're long term policy issues. And uh, whether the government delivers on them or not is something we're, we're going to see over a period of years rather than in a few hours when the minister stands up on budget day. Just turning briefly to this week's event, how does Budget 22 affect our macroeconomic landscape? How do the economists and key stakeholders like the Fiscal Advisory Council, how do they view it? Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting this year because it had looked, I suppose, like a pretty tricky exercise on behalf of the two ministers, Pascal Dunne and Michael McGrath. Coming out of the uh, coming out of the pandemic, obviously, as we all know, we had to borrow billions to uh, to get through the pandemic, to keep businesses going, and to keep families going via the PUP, uh, and a tricky exercise to wind all that down. And, and kind of all the forecasts, I suppose, pretty much up to this summer, had been that it would be kind of a slow grind out of the sh out of the shutdown, at least for the domestic economy. But I think two things have surprised people. One is how strongly the bit of the economy they didn't have to shut down, the multinational sector. The export sector has kept going right through the pandemic. And the second thing is how quickly consumer spending has rebounded mm -hmm. after things have started to open up over the last few months. That's made the tax figures way stronger than expected. So that, for example, this year, the government had expected to borrow 20 billion. It now is going to have to borrow just over 13. Next year, the prediction had been borrowing of 14. That's now down to eight. There are really big differences. And I think you'd have to suspect uh, that Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGraw were keeping uh, keeping a lot of that under their hat because had they let their cabinet colleagues know that there was um, so much additional money um, being taken in tax revenues, I think the pressure on them to spend yet more might have been irresistible. As it turned out, we only learned about that the weekend before the budget and uh, it was probably more or less too late then, bar, bar a few late uh, Bar a few late battles, perhaps. Yeah, the deal, the deals were already done. So they've done a good job in difficult circumstances, as you say, largely down to the fact that the tax take across income tax, corporation tax and VAT receipts was was really, you know, was really beyond our expectations this time last year. But there are still difficulties ahead, aren't there? There are inflation increases this week of 3.7%. That debt issue is still a massive um, item on the, the government's agenda and the demographics also are not going in our favour. Could could you just talk us through some of what you see are the key challenges for the government beyond Budget 22? Yeah, I think 
for the next few months and maybe for the next year, th things may continue to go pretty well because the growth momentum in the economy is really strong. In the short term, the main kind of uncertainty, I guess, surrounds the international economy. You know, we've never we've never seen a pandemic like this before. We really don't know how the world economy is going to recover, and that's very important for Ireland. And we've seen the kind of problems that are starting to emerge, uh, supply chain mess-ups, which are lasting much longer than expected. I see the German official forecasters have cut their forecasts for the German economy uh, today, this year, because of that. And linked to that, inflation starting to, mm. to, 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 to edge upwards. And the figure of 3.7% uh, this week is, is, is pretty striking. Now, a lot of it, as the Department of Finance has, has pointed out, is due to kind of a small number of prices, particularly energy prices, also things like airfares, which have jumped right back up again as people are starting to travel. And the expectation is, or had been, that a lot of that would kind of start to work its way out of the system over the next year. Um, and, and that was the basis, I think, on which the budget welfare package and the fuel package and all those things were worked out. Now, there is a danger that, you know, inflation gets more embedded now and mm. uh, that we are heading back into an era when, you know, prices are going to rise more quickly. And, 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 in that, and in turn, that's going to mean interest rates are going to start perhaps edging up over the next few years, while perhaps we might expect it, have expected them to stay steady. So there are, there are issues there. I think they're the key things over the next, the next year or so. Beyond that, there are, there are two, maybe three big things. One is that, as I said, the, the politics are pushing us towards a bigger state, and a bigger state has to be paid for in some way. And it's, I think, unrealistic to expect that corporation tax is going to just keep on shooting up and pay all the bills as it has done over the last two years. So that's the first one. And the second one is the population is getting older, and that's going to, that's going to cost a lot of money. Uh, and really, that argument, I think, is one of the key one of the key points of that argument is, is the whole uh, question of what age people retire at. Big hot button election uh, issue in the last general election. The Pension Commission now has recommended that the ages start to increase in the next few years, the age of retirement. Uh, we have to see what the government does about that. Um, the Commission on Tax and Welfare, interestingly established by uh, Pascal Dunne, who is going to report next summer. And I think the timing of that is interesting. Uh, you know. I think the view in government was probably that let's get out of the pandemic first and then start to face up to these issues. Uh, and and we, I think we will be looking at questions like, well, look, if people are going to get better entitlements, do they pay more PRSI? Do their companies pay more PRSI? Do we need to find new sources of revenue to pay for all this? And then the final thing, of course, is the whole green agenda, um, you know, which is which is going to be a cost to the exchequer in the next five to ten years. There's no question about it. A lot of potential economic benefits there for Ireland and gains and all that. All that stuff, but you know there is uh, houses, a lot of houses to be retrofitted, uh, state-owned houses, and, and also uh, public houses where people are going to need incentives. There's going to be need to be incentives to get people to uh, take on electronic cars. A lot of spending is going to be needed in agriculture, public transport, right across the board. Now some of that's in the national development plan, but I suspect the realization is going to grow that uh, more, you know, more is going to be needed in the next few years. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Cliff, just going back to something you said earlier about the framework internationally, um, one could argue that we have a, a new framework uh, to work off fiscal policy here domestically as well. So there are three large pieces of government policy statements that are going to shape the economy for the years ahead. You mentioned the National Development Plan and we're 
obviously we're discussing the budget, uh, but the one that we haven't seen yet and that's coming up is the Climate Action Plan that's going to set out our carbon sectoral targets for the coming years. Can you talk us through what that climate plan will actually do? Yeah, I think this is going to be potentially kind of a really important moment, I suppose, for the debate. And we saw in the recent Irish Times uh, Ipsos MRBI poll, you know, some resistance on behalf of people for, for, for paying the price of climate change. And uh, it's going to be a real issue for the government to put a context around that. What's due to happen over the next month is a revised climate action plan uh, and budgets uh, set for each uh, for each sector of the economy. Uh, overseen by each government department, carbon budgets, which are basically going to uh, mandate kind of the, uh, the the level of greenhouse gas emissions that can come from those sectors. Uh, and if one sector is given a bit of leeway, for example, uh, if the agricultural sector was given a bit of leeway on its targets, uh, well, then we're going to have to cut more from elsewhere to, to, to make up the difference. So I, I think it's probably going to be quite a, a sobering exercise when we see the challenge we face. Uh, you know, Carbon emissions went down when the economy shut uh, during the pandemic, uh, six or seven percent or whatever it was. Um, but while we haven't got a current management, you, you, you could pretty much uh, guarantee that as the economy has roared back into action, carbon emissions have, have roared back as well. And, you know, we haven't decoupled in any mm. way the, uh, our, our growth from, uh, fr- from the carbon creating uh from the carbon creation in the economy. So I, I think there's going to be real issues to be faced. If I was to kind of put my finger on a couple of sectors, I mean, agriculture is mm. the obvious one where there's a lot of resistance, um, a lot of resistance in the farming sector, the kind of measures which have been floated, and it's kind of hard to know where that's going to land. Uh, but but it certainly is one of the one of the key issues. And the other one that government insiders point to is, <clears throat> is transport, um, public transport, private transport, how people get around, uh, an issue for people living in cities and perhaps an even bigger issue for people living in rural areas who argue that they've no alternative but to uh, but, but to have a kind of a car-based lifestyle. So I think really, really serious and significant issues to be raised in the carbon budgets, which I think are likely to be published at the end of this month, maybe early next month. And do you think, Cliff, that business and, and maybe even the public have, have no idea the magnitude of the scope of what this is going to do? I think big businesses have started to cop onto it. Mm. Uh, because their investors are starting to put pressure on them, and uh, this is really, uh, this is a really, really big issue now for, for big investors who are putting money into into the larger companies, and they're saying to the larger companies, look, uh, depending on what sector they're in, um, they really see this as a risk factor for companies. Mm. Uh, they worry that some of the assets they have on their balance sheet may be worth a lot less in years to come if 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 they're linked to, to tightly to carbon creation uh, stranded assets as it's called and that really goes right across pretty much every certainly every manufacturing sector and, and to an extent the service sector as well but it's, it's a big issue for 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 the big dairy companies it's a big issue for the crhs and the smurfits and you know i i think there is a realization in business now that this that this is for real and that's going to really ramp up seriously certainly big business maybe small business not so much and consumers, I, I, I don't think so. Uh, I, I don't think really the scale of what what may be necessary has has been communicated politically uh, in, in a clear way. Um, you know, we're all in favour of a bit more cycling or a bit more walking or a bit more public transport if we can, uh, you know, if the facilities are there for us to do it. Mm. But I'm not sure people have uh, have really grasped the kind of enormity of what 
what may be coming. I mean, I suppose one illustration of that is a lot of the future policy is based on people living in smaller accommodation closer to city centres, cutting their commute, meaning their commutes on public transport. I suppose you might say a more continental way of living, mm. a continental European way of living. Uh, people living more densely in city centres. Now, that, you know, that sounds great when you just say it like that, but um, are people, do people want to live that way? Are they prepared to live that way? Are they prepared to invest in it? Um, are they prepared to change kind of the uh, the old uh, kind of goal of having a house in suburbia with a garden? You know, these are the kind of uh, really big issues that are going to come on the agenda, I think, over the next uh, the next five years or so. What type of finance minister, this is Pascal Donoghue's fifth budget now, what type of finance minister do you think that Pascal Donoghue is? If you take it all in the round, could you say he's a conservative, a prudent minister for finance, or is there any political ideology emerging from him? Yeah, it's an interesting one, all right. Um, I'd say he's kind of a, I mean, he, he presents himself as kind of a centrist, and I think I think he is, you know, he's not a, uh, He's not a he's not a big spending minister in general, or, or or a big tax cutting minister. And indeed, I suppose the the whole political agenda has moved over has moved on from tax cutting now. And while Fine Gael make noises in that re, in that in that direction before the budget, really the reality of of what what's happening now is is all towards spending. I think he's a planner, um, and and I think he's he's driven. To a significant extent, by 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 process and by planning, uh, as opposed to kind of doing things on the wing, if you like. So I think himself and pa- and Michael McGrath will have looked out, will have looked out during the pandemic over the next couple of years and say, look, how is this going to pan out? When are we going to? How are we going to take the first budget after the pandemic? Uh, how are we going to take the next one after that? And 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 kind of even perhaps looking out to the to the next general election. Mm. Uh, now things often don't work out as finance minister as you want them to do, uh, but nonetheless, I, I suspect that's um, I suspect that's kind of the nature of 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 Pascal Donoghue, planning rather than drama. I suppose you might mm. say. I mean, obviously, he was everyone's plans were thrown off course by the pandemic, mm. and uh, while he had taken some flack early in his period uh, as finance minister from the fiscal advisory council for not using the strong economic growth to cut borrowing more. There, there was some progress made in that front uh, in the last few years before the pandemic, and that did leave us in a did leave us in a better position during the pandemic to to, to borrow the vast amounts of money and spend. And um, while I think everyone, including himself, I'm sure, were were worried about the uh, long term damage to the economy that that was that the pandemic was going to create, and I think it will create long term damage in some sectors. It does seem we have a chance of getting out of it now with 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 less damage than we might have expected. Mm. I think there are some sectors that are still really in the front line uh, of it. Uh, hospitality, retail, travel would be would be the obvious ones, and of course nightclubs and and and, and pubs perhaps as part of that. Um, but but apart from that, uh, I think a lot of sectors have have got away better than we might have hoped for, and uh, perhaps give us a little more leeway for the future i mean mm. when you when you when you compare it with the uk where they're now looking at uh, cutbacks and higher taxes to pay for their situation and a much worse growth outlook um, and growth forecast been cut continental europe we're certainly probably in a better position just also in, in relation to um pascal donahue you mentioned last week um that you felt he dodged a bullet on corporation tax can you talk us through why you think that is yeah i mean uh, i think earlier this year 
there was a real threat to our whole strategy, the whole strategy we've used of attracting multinational companies here, kind of driven by what happened in America when mm. um, Biden was elected. He planned to spend a load of money, planned to hike up taxes on, on, on corporations to a really high level and was pushing for <clears throat> similarly high level around the world, I suppose, so he could say to American legislators, look, I'm putting taxes up here, but they're going up across the world as well. And you kind of figures of 20, 21% were being spoken about for, for minimum tax rates being set in America and possibly in the OECD as well. And that would have really been, I think, dangerous for our economic model. As time went on, you know, fortunately, from the Irish point of view, um, American politics, politics pushed that rate downwards. Uh, and I think also mm. fortunately from the Irish point of view, everyone's just so fed up with this now that they want to deal. Mm. Um, so I uh, don't know who managed to get the at least taken out of the 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 at least 15% in terms of the target for the minimum rate. So I, I think we did. It, cu- it could have been a lot worse. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Mm. And it's kind of hard to forecast where it's going to go now. But mm-hmm. there still are dangers. And I suppose two you might point to is the first is that this agreement, if it goes finally goes through, and that depends on whether the US Congress can sign up to it, um, will change the way the tax is collected. And uh, in future, more of it's going to be paid where companies sell, where companies' customers are, and less where their headquarters are. And that's <clears throat> that's bad for Ireland and big, good for big countries like France and Germany. Now, the divvy up now doesn't look like it's going to be particularly dangerous for us, but you know who knows once the principle is set, what might happen in future. So that's kind of a longer term thing. The shorter term thing is that Whatever about the rate, and I don't think for big multinationals it's going to make that much difference between 12 and a half and 15. The whole structure, the way they are taxed is being changed as well. A lot of loopholes and special tax arrangements are being closed off. The whole thing has really been turned upside down. Mm. And we benefited hugely from the first phase of that after 2015, like massively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're still seeing the the outturn of that. And there's there's just a risk because we rely on so many such a small number of really big companies that if their practices were to change and their policies were to change, some of that could go the other way pretty quickly. Uh, that doesn't mean they're going to pull their factories out of Ireland or, or lay off people here. It's more to do with the way they arrange their accounting. So it's it's just a risk factor. It's a real unpredictable factor. Yeah. Um, there's no reason to think it's going to hit this year or next year. But I think equally, we would be very unwise to... Uh, to 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 uh, to tie ourselves to the the prospect of corporation tax just keeping to go up, it has allowed some kind of tougher decisions to be dodged over the last few years. Mm. If corporation tax hadn't gone up so much, the last few budgets would have looked really very different. And I think we've got to prepare for that in the future. What would happen if the US didn't sign up to this and the OECD continue? What what happens in that situation? Uh, if the if the US don't sign up, I, I think the OECD process will collapse um, because everyone else will say, "Look, why 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 are we bothering with this if the if the, if the US isn't, or why are we bothering it bothering with it in an OECD framework?" So I think there's a, there might be two kinds of OECD collapse. One is where they agree half the deal, the bit on the minimum rate, but don't agree the other bit, the bit about how taxing rights are reallocated to where customers are. That might mean the OECD would agree on the minimum rate, but it could still row, leave a row between Europe and America on the other bit, the um, the, the taxing rights and the digital sales taxes that yeah. a lot of countries are. And we could be caught in the middle of that. So that's, that wouldn't be good. And that row, you know, multiplied by two, then if the US agrees nothing, and the whole, the whole OECD process collapses. So I think messy for Ireland in that case, the risk of kind of transatlantic tensions, the risk of kind of action being taken. And 
you know, we were worried when Donald Trump came in, what he was going to do in mm. terms of tariffs and all that kind of thing. Joe Biden has hasn't uh, hasn't changed the approach. There's no surprise there if, for anyone who read his election literature. This is a big issue in America now: bringing jobs home, bringing tax dollars home, stopping companies uh, investing uh, investing overseas when they could be making things in America, particularly producing things which are sold into the American market, like some of our pharmaceutical sections, for example. So I think if the whole thing collapses, that is. It's hard to predict exactly how it will play out, but it's potentially a lot worse for us. So best case scenario for us now is that this, this long-standing deal is finally done. Might cost us a few euro, but uh, at least there's stability and a bit of certainty. And that's a large draw for planning for these huge multinationals. It's, a, it's about stability as much as anything else. Cliff, thank Absolutely. you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it and look forward to Pleasure. talking to you again soon. Thanks, Mandy. We're joined now by George Parker, who is the political editor for the Financial Times. George, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. George, can we just start with Brexit and the protocol? Can you take us through what the EU has suggested uh, and what way they suggest they will deal with the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol? And how has that been received in the UK? Well, the European Commission regards this as a very big offer to the UK in terms of making the Northern Ireland Protocol work more effectively for the people of Northern Ireland. They said they've turned European Union rules and norms inside out and upside down to try to make it work. Um, and essentially what they're doing is they're, they're trying to reduce the number of um, checks that have undertaken on goods travelling between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, which has been a big issue for Northern Ireland business and for the unionist community. So to try and soften that trade border that's been drawn down the Irish Sea between GB and Northern Ireland. and so. The upshot of that is that there'll be around 80% fewer checks on uh, products uh, made of animals or plants and something like a 50% cut on the number of customs checks. So the EU's gone a long way and frankly, quite a bit further than many people in London expected they would. However, there's a big but to this. The, um, the UK not only wants to soften the border, uh, the trade border, but they also want to change the way the whole Northern Ireland protocol is run. And in particular, they want to get rid of the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice over Northern Ireland. They regard the ECJ as a foreign court, which has no role to play in the UK. And for the European Union, that's a big sticking point. So negotiations are going to start. Um, I'd say they're getting off to a more positive start than one might have imagined a few weeks ago. But nevertheless, there are huge stumbling blocks um, lying ahead of the, the negotiators. Yeah, and David Frost, the Brexit minister, has been absolutely categoric that the government won't accept the ECJ oversight uh, of the Northern Ireland Protocol. They want joint arbitration. But are there any examples, say, in Switzerland or Norway that the UK are thinking of in terms of how this might be uh, managed going forward? Well, the, the absolutist position of, uh, of David Frost and, and indeed Boris Johnson is a sort of pure sovereignty question, which is they don't want the European Court of Justice anywhere near UK territory. But as you suggest, some people have suggested there could be a compromise um, some way down the track, similar to the arrangements the EU has with countries on its border, including, for example, Ukraine. And in that situation, what you have is there's a dispute that arises. Both sides try to get together in an arbitration arrangement and try to sort things out. And then what would happen is the European Court of Justice would be there waiting in the wings as the ultimate arbiter mm. of European mm. Union law. Um, the idea would be that both sides could claim a bit of a victory. Mm. However, 
for the UK, that might not be quite enough because the, the European, European Court of Justice would still be there. And for the EU side, of course, they say, look, this is a fact, matter of fact, the Northern Ireland is staying in the single market for goods. The arbiter and police are policeman for that uh, arrangement is the European Court of Justice. So there's quite a big gap to be bridged. George, do people in the UK really know or care about the ECJ issue at all? I mean, what would you say to the <laughs> argument that this is just another rallying cry for Boris Johnson to speak to his base? Like he needs a bogeyman, Brexit is their bogeyman and the Northern Ireland Protocol just gives current cause to an ongoing narrative. That's That's basically what a lot of people here are saying. I think that's a fair reflection, and I, I would be even more, I'm afraid, cynical about this. Um, a lot of people in most of the United Kingdom don't really care very much about the Northern Ireland Protocol, or indeed Northern Ireland. It's a harsh thing to say, but it's it's frankly true. What's also true is that most people, I suspect, in Northern Ireland, particularly the business community, don't care about the European Court of Justice issue either. What they want is a smooth border and be able to get their goods across from GB into Northern Ireland without endless paperwork and endless delays. It is an issue for the unionist community in Northern Ireland. But, you know, I can understand those people who say that this has become a sort of theological issue, really, for Boris Johnson and the Brexiteers. And it's also important to point out that until July of this year, we didn't hear anything Mm. at all from the British government about this issue around the European Court of Justice and its jurisdiction in Northern Ireland. It has to be remembered, it's only two years ago that uh, David Frost signed up to that agreement, which, which basically enshrined the role of the ECJ in Northern Ireland. So, you know... When I first saw this being proposed as a British negotiating position, I assumed it was just a bargaining chip they were putting on the table that they withdraw a bit further down the line. I'm still a little bit of that view as well, um, that they put it out there as a way of extracting maximum concessions from the EU on the other side. But it's very hard to tell in a negotiation how serious David Mm. Frost and Boris Johnson really are. Yeah, you say that, but in the last 24, 48 hours, even the discussion around the ECJ has changed somewhat. Now we're discussing, you know, other arbitration processes in in other countries that we might be looking at. And Mm. as you stated there, most politicians and, and large business groups here on the island have all welcomed the proposals that were set out by the EU this week. Um, The DUP, though, have said that it's just the start of a process. Perhaps they're looking at the tactics that are being deployed by Frost and Johnson and saying, well, look, actually playing hardball works with the EU. We've got a huge amount of concessions already. Well, that's possibly true. I think what will happen now as the negotiations start is that Boris Johnson and David Frost will come under a lot of pressure from the Northern Ireland business community Mm. to get a a compromise. Um, And although the, the DUP don't like the idea of the ECJ being involved in the northern jurisdiction of Northern Ireland. Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party have been known to metaphorically throw the DUP under the bus in the past, haven't they? <laughs> Not too distant past indeed. So look, I mean, I think there's all to play for here. Mm. It's important that David Frost is not referring to this issue as being a red line for the UK, um, which suggests there could be some room for negotiation. But at the end of this, you know, there's a, a fork in the road for the UK. Either they go down the road of compromise, which means well, they have to drop some of their arguments on the ECJ, or they go down a different route. They trigger Article 16. They suspend parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol. They go into a full-scale dispute with the European Union and the prospects of a trade war. And, you know, when you consider uh, the current situation of the British economy in terms of supply chain shortages, Mm. disruption at the ports and all the rest of it, do you actually want to have a trade war with your nearest trading neighbours in the middle of the winter? I'm not sure you really do. So, you know, I'd say that this is still, there's still all to play for in these negotiations, um, for sure. 
Uh, it leads to us, uh, I suppose, a, a broader question. I don't know if you heard um, our Thonisha Leov Radkar during the week speaking about um, these developments. He used the opportunity to remind other countries outside of the EU that other nations who might be involved in dialogues on potential trade deals with the UK should proceed with caution. Like, does he have a point here? Could all of this backfire uh, when you see ex-advisors like Dominic Cummings suggesting that... Uh, the argument over the protocol isn't in fact a development, it's a tactic. So is that issue of bad faith creeping in beyond Brexit for the UK at all? Do you get any sense of that? Yeah, I think Leo Varadkar is right. It's hugely damaging to a country like the UK, which has a reputation um, for being a very straight dealer when it comes to international treaties. You know, Britain's an international trading country. We rely on international agreements in our own interests. We sign a whole load of them. And generally, we expect other people to honour them. And, you know, if you get to a situation where, as Dominic Cummings was suggesting in a series of tweets this week, that we sort of sign international treaties with our fingers crossed behind our backs. And as Dominic Cummings put it, the core function of number 10 is to cheat foreigners. Mm. Well, I mean, that doesn't sound great, does it? And you could say, well, it's just Dominic Cummings. But the fact is, you know, Dominic Cummings uh, was in the building when Boris Johnson and David Frost signed the Northern Ireland Protocol in 2019. And that we're now trying to rip it up. And of course, that looks like bad faith, not just for the Irish government and the EU, but anyone looking in from the outside world. And one other thing I would say about this is it's not something which traditional conservative supporters find particularly attractive. Mm. They don't. This is not their idea of the United Kingdom, you know, the sort of the, or the reputation of the United Kingdom. Um, and I think Boris Johnson has to be quite wary about going down this route and appearing to become a sort of rogue actor on the international stage. I, yeah, I have to admit uh, the entire debacle makes me very suspicious that they're determined just to continue this row as a smokescreen to kind of cover over the other issues which are facing them and that's their deficiencies on the domestic policy. So they have a very difficult winter ahead of them. The hospital systems will be under a huge amount of pressure um, huge issues on the energy front in terms of not just pricing but supply. A highly critical report this week of the UK's handling of the pandemic and this development as well this week that the electric rail freight operators are having to mothball their electric locomotives to switch back to diesel trains because they're under pressure for electricity supply. I mean, there's a there's a there's a cornucopia of problems facing Boris Johnson. Um, is there that sense in the UK that, you know, this is a crisis emerging for them? I think there definitely, yeah, there definitely is. Um, I'm not sure the extent to which having a row with the European Union anymore is a sort of deflection from that or whether that's in some way helps Boris Johnson. I think the public have moved on a bit from Brexit and they don't want to keep reading about rows and more aggravation, especially when, as you say, there's a whole load of other problems mm. facing, facing the country. So I don't think using Northern Ireland and Brexit as a distraction tactic works. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the problems are piling up on, on many different levels. Uh, some people have said Britain's facing this winter of discontent of rising prices, higher energy prices, disruption of the ports, toys not turning up on the shelves for Christmas, all the other things. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't look great for the government at the moment. Um, I should say that it's not quite the same as the famous winter of discontent in our country in 1978-9 when people weren't, weren't being buried because the gravediggers were on strike and inflation was 10%. It's not, mm. we're not in that kind of territory. It's also worth pointing out that the employment market in the UK is doing extremely well at the moment. Um, so there are some bright spots, but yeah, it's not a great it's not a great look. And you know, no matter 
whether it's the government's fault or it's the fault of global forces, market forces, disruption in Chinese factories, in the end, people look for someone to blame and the people they look to blame are the people in power, in this case, the government. So it's going to be a tough few months for the British government, for sure. And um, having the Northern Ireland issue rumbling on in the background is um, certainly a, probably an unwelcome distraction for Boris Johnson. Just back to that Northern Ireland issue, George, what's your sense? Do you think that they will ultimately trigger Article 16? Is this all where this is destined to go inevitably? I think there are some people in, in the British government who think that is where this will all end up, that um, David Frost and Boris Johnson will negotiate in good faith, in inverted commas, and constructively with the EU, and then reluctantly conclude it's not good enough, and therefore we're going to activate Article 16, and then challenge the EU to do something like, for example, you know, what, let's say, say to the EU, what are you going to do about it? Mm. We know the EU won't put up a border in, on the island of Ireland. And we also know that the EU won't put up a border, trade border between Ireland and the rest of the European Union. So what, what are they going to do? Well, the EU could do a whole load of things in terms of retaliating on the trade front, which I think the British government should be wary of. So look, I mean, there's, I, I would say it's a split view at the moment. There are certainly some people who think that Article 16 is where this head is heading in a big row. I still think at the end, given all the other things going on at the moment in British politics and how much is at stake in Northern Ireland and how much businesses in Northern Ireland just want to get on with stability and back to a normal life. I don't know. I still think there's a reasonably good chance that at the end of all this, both sides will get together and there'll be a deal. One final question I wanted to ask you is about other member states in relation to the concessions that we saw this week. Um, might there be any pushback from from other countries on this or has it all been well road tested by uh, Mara Sechkovic in advance of the publication this week? Well, I think um, Mara Sechkovic sort of moved heaven and earth really to get to where he did. He had to overcome resistance from other parts of the European Commission to come up with a set of proposals. Um, and there was a certain amount of resistance from other member states, from member states, including, of course, France, to making any concessions mm. to Boris Johnson, who, as we were discussing earlier, they regarded someone who's acted in bad faith throughout this whole episode. So I think there are people who, on the EU side, who think maybe he's gone too far. There are certainly member states which want, want the Commission to start drawing up plans for a, a retaliatory strike against the UK if it activates Article 16. So, um, you know, there, there are there are hardline positions being taken on both sides. Sometimes that helps in the negotiation, to be honest, because um, you force both sides to look over the precipice. So we'll see how it all pans out. OK, we leave it there. That was George Parker, political editor of the Financial Times. George, thanks for being with us. We're joined now by Jan Strupchowski, who is Deputy Bureau Chief in Brussels for Reuters. Jan, you're very welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, hello, everybody, and thank you for having me on the show. Jan, we're going to look first at the issue of inflation across the Eurozone. So it's hit a 13-year high last month and it looks likely to jump higher still. I, I've seen that the Dutch Central Bank chief has said that the outlook for price growth warrants an end to the European Central Bank's emergency bond purchase next March. What are your thoughts on that issue? Well, it seems that the inflation debate has been shifting uh, more towards uh, the position that Mr. Knott has, uh, is presenting now. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, finance ministers and, and central bankers in Europe were, were quite uh, uh, adamant that all this is temporary, that uh, the prices will, will fall back next year, and uh, it's all caused by the energy shock and uh, some bottlenecks uh, that have been uh, the result of the pandemic. 
Now, uh, more and more economists seem to think that uh, some of the, of the price rises uh, may be here to stay, or at least uh, parts of them, uh, that the huge investment needed in uh, Europe to transform the whole economy uh, to sustainable sources of energy will cost a lot of money, and uh, that money will have to be recouped somehow. Therefore, energy costs will not go down as quickly and deeply as initially expected. Therefore, perhaps inflation will stay higher for longer. Uh, but um, <laughs> I'm, I, I don't pretend to know exactly when and how. Yes, yeah, so the thought is that the inflationary pressures are, are far more fundamental than fleeting. And I suppose it leads on to another discussion that's happening in Europe at the moment and I know that the European Commission next week will publish a new assessment of the economic impact of the pandemic on the economy and its implications for budgetary rules there so it's looking I suppose in a wider context at how they ultimately underpin the euro currency. What what can we expect from the EC on the report side? I think the Commission basically wants to relaunch a discussion that was suspended uh, at the beginning of the of the pandemic uh, back in uh, 2020, and they uh, they want all governments and uh, academia researchers and everybody else to have a say in uh, how to change the EU's budget rules so that they better reflect reality, especially the realities, uh, economic reality after the the pandemic, uh, when you have uh, governments with uh, huge debts. Uh, the average now is around 100% of GDP. This is a far cry from the 60% of GDP that was at the beginning of the 90s when when EU budget mm. rules were set in treaties. Mm. And the other big uh, challenge that uh, the EU faces is, like I said before, the transformation of its uh, whole economy to a zero-emission um, economy, which will require hundreds of billions of euros over, over decades. And uh, uh, the rules should at least not discourage governments from doing that. They should... Uh, somehow help them find the money and uh, not be punished for, uh, for instance, borrowing that money to, to transform their economies. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Jan Strupchowski, uh, the Bureau Chief at Brussels for Reuters. Jan, turning to something that's got quite a bit of coverage here, uh, last week a Polish court ruling challenged the supremacy of EU law um, and it started a, an existential crisis, if you like, fears that Poland could eventually leave the bloc. What was that ruling exactly last week? Can you talk us through it? The ruling basically said that... Uh Parts of the EU treaties are uh, not compatible with the Polish constitu- constitution. Um, it would be uh, it would be rather boring uh, to go through all the legal uh, uh, language that that was used. Uh, bottom line is basically the the constitutional tribunal in Poland now is filled with political appointees of the ruling. Uh, uh, Party, and, uh, and basically all the judges that took part in the in the deliberations mm. uh, were appointed by the ruling party. Yeah. The, their legal arguments are weak. At least that's what uh, what um, uh, all kinds of uh, organisations of, of lawyers and judges and prosecutors, etc., are saying in reaction to that. Uh, also, the Commission does not uh, think the, the, they have a case. However, the verdict itself, political as it is, makes 
the, the Poland's position uh, in the EU rather precarious because if it's uh, uh, because it undermines the very legal basis of uh, of the EU. Mm. Um, the EU is a is a union of of uh, basically a legal union. So um, if if you don't accept the supremacy of EU law over national law, then uh, the, the the union ceases to exist. Yeah, Jan, uh, there's no EU ruling that's boring here. We spend most of our days discussing Brexit. So um, there is, though, the the fear, I suppose, that Poland might exit. And because the ruling, as you say, is is so contrary to the support that remains in Poland for the EU membership is still quite strong, though, isn't it? Like Poland have done very well. They've they've been the beneficiary of a lot of aid. So despite this ruling, the, the public sentiment is quite different to what we we saw, say, in Brexit, where uh, the the support for the EU membership is actually still quite strong. Indeed, indeed. The latest polls show that uh, support for EU membership in Poland is between 80 and 90 percent. So it's a it's a gigantic, overwhelming majority uh, that wants to be in the EU. Um, believes it's a it's a huge opportunity for Poland, uh, not least because of the money that Poland. Uh, is getting from the EU, has been getting and still can, but uh, it's also a <clears throat> sort of civilization choice, uh, cultural choice of uh, being in the West and uh, supporting Western values uh, rather than siding with, say, our Eastern neighbors. Mm. So um, the, it, is, it is very clear that Poland as a society uh, uh, is wants to stay in the EU and there is no no popular support for it. However, many commentators uh, point out if you embark on a campaign of discrediting the EU mm. long enough mm-hmm. and persistently enough, you can change uh, public opinion. And uh, and this, this may well happen in Poland. It took 40 years in Britain, but uh, in the end, <laughs> uh, the Eurosceptics uh, uh, succeeded. Yeah, and just on that point, does this have any implications for Britain in relation to their Brexit deal? Like, d- d- could they use this, I suppose, as a way to change the Brexit deal that they have with the EU? Oh, you mean uh, with, with the Northern Ireland question? I don't think so. I mean, the the the, the negotiations on Northern Ireland will be uh, between the Commission and and uh, Johnson's uh, cabinet. The EU has offered quite substantial concessions. Uh, yesterday, uh, there will be first talks between Lord Frost and uh, Maros Sestrovic of the Commission tomorrow in London. Um, I think both sides have already made positive noises, saying uh, they uh, at least uh, uh, Frost, I think, was uh, was quoted as saying he approaches the negotiations without any red lines, which is uh, some which is a, <laughs> a positive statement at the start of talks. Uh, for the EU, the red line is uh, the jurisdiction of the, the EU's top court in Northern Ireland over EU laws, because Northern Ireland is part of the of the single market, and only the ECJ is allowed to rule on EU laws. So, if Northern Ireland has to remain in the single market, it has to be uh, under the jurisdiction of of the ECJ. Um, hopefully, this will not be a deal breaker for the. Uh, for London, uh, it seems this issue is not at the top of uh, the agenda of, of normal people and citizens of Northern Ireland. I'm not sure 
that they care very much, whether it's the ECJ or somebody else, that will settle disputes. What they do care about is empty shelves uh, uh, in supermarkets and uh, access to medicine, uh, that kind of uh, stuff. So um, uh, I think that with the EU's concessions to uh, ease most of the customs checks, I think the, they mentioned the number 80% fewer customs checks on the items, I think uh, a compromise can be reached. Very much appreciate you being with us and we'll leave it there. That's Jan Strupchowski, the Deputy Bureau Chief in Brussels for Reuters. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. We have a bit more time in the podcast, so there are extended conversations with my guests today. Many thanks to today's guests and to the team of Simon Keane and Stephen Jordan with Stephen McLoon on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with News Talks on the Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, enjoy the rest of your day. Taking Stock on News Talk. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. Has your fuse box gone haywire? Is your water pressure too weak? Or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade. They don't last forever, you know. Well, the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that. So if you're locked out on a Thursday and need a locksmith, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. TNCs apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details.